0: Well, would you open your Bibles this morning uh, to the Gospel of John? We're going to study the um, John 12, uh, verses 27 through 50. Last week, as Eric, Eric really gave us such a good summary already, remember Jesus said that the hour has come. And we talked about what does that hour mean? Because, you know, so much of the Gospel of John thus far has been saying his hour has not yet come. His hour has not yet come. And now he says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So I want you to be thinking about the the principle of what it means for Christ and for God to be glorified. He then tells us how that glory... Should I use the handheld? Test one, two, test. Test one, two, one, two, test one, two. Oh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> the glory of Christ was going to come not through him ascending this staircase to sit on a golden throne, but is going to come through his laying his life down. On the cross, just like a seed would be buried in order to bring fruit, a harvest from that. And so that's how he would see the coming of his glory. The hour of his glory was the crucifixion. So let's define glory because we can kind of Christianize that word. Let's define glory. So glory means that God is being revealed and worshiped and adored and loved and obeyed for who he is. That's what it means to glorify God. He is being revealed for who he is. And as a result, it it compels worship and being cherishing him and obeying him and trusting him as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So the theme of glory is gonna continue through and permeate the verses that we're studying this morning. So I want you to tune your hearts so don't, don't just read it, be, be looking for this as you're reading. Let's be purposeful as we, as we go into God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. If you're visiting with us today, we, we say this periodically, this, this is like no other book. This is not a sports page. This is not a religious uh, academic book. This is, this is not a newspaper. This, guys, this is God speaking to us. And we don't deserve to hear a syllable from his precious, merciful lips, but he gives us the revelation of himself in his word, How, how blessed the people we are to have it. So let's listen for the theme of his glory as we read, starting in chapter 12, beginning in verse 27. This is Jesus speaking. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name, and then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd stood there and heard it. They said that it just thundered. Others said, I, I think that was an angel speaking to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Let me just hit a pause button there. Make your personal. This wasn't just for the people gathered around him. This was for the people who would be hearing this 2,000 years later. This voice from heaven was heard for people in Midland, Texas. Amazing amazing grace, just to carry on the theme we've just been singing about. This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and he hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And therefore... They could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and he spoke of him Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but, that's a huge, that's a huge word there, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on that last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has has himself given me a commandment and what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say... As the Father has told me. Oh Lord, lots to unpack here. There's no way we can profit from this text apart from your loving kindness to help us understand the very word you inspired. And we're so thankful that you love to do that. So please, Lord, would you give me grace as as a pastor, as a preacher? to handle your word in a manner worthy of you for your glory, for the joy of your people, for their godly good and growth, for the advancement of the mission of Christ in the earth. And would you grant every heart here, ears to hear and eyes to behold, and a heart that would be in love with the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in this sermon. In Jesus' name. Amen. If I asked you this morning to name one of the most comforting passages in the Bible for you, I'd love to know your answer. I would love that. That would be a neat conversation point uh, to talk about. Some might point to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I I shall not want, I shall not lack anything that I need. he, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Oh, those are comforting, comforting words. Some may point to Romans 8.28, 8, 8, for we know God causes all things to work together. For the good, I always like to insert godly good, because otherwise I think we just, can't, we can, we can, hijack that verse and define good based on the way the world defines good and not the way God does. He works all things to to work together for the godly good of those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. Others of you might want to keep going in chapter 8 And quote this passage, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels or rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't you want to just say amen after all of those verses? I wonder if some of you would have landed in John 14.1. So that's three weeks from now. We'll get to John 14.1 three weeks from now. But it plays a huge role, I believe, in the text this morning. John 14.1 says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe, also, believe in God. Believe also in me. And then he goes further beyond that. If you listen to news radio, news talk radio, Radio personality Sean Hannity loves to quote part of that verse. If you listen, you won't listen for very long, you're going to hear Sean Hannity say, oh, let not your hearts be troubled. And when I hear it, I I go, come on, come on, give me the rest of it. And then typically he goes, here's the reason you don't have to let your hearts be troubled, but he points to political answers or cultural answers. (laughs) I want to pull my hair out. I think that's why I'm losing hair. I think that's, Why I'm losing hair. Oh, my goodness. Oh, this morning we're going to learn why our hearts don't need to be troubled. Um, And I hope that the calming of troubled hearts is especially meaningful to moms this morning. You know, I think if there was was some kind of a competition (laughs) for whose hearts can be most troubled in life, I think moms would be a contender, (laughs) moms would be a contender not because of anything deficient in a mom, it's just because so much is on mom's plates. I I just can't even imagine, I mean I just watched Jan, you know, and the raising of our three sons and it just, it's like you're constantly on, aren't you, I mean there's just really no off button, even when you fall asleep, I don't even know that the off button got turned off fully. I think you're still just thinking and there's always more on your plate than than you can get to. And yet there's always this thing inside you that feels like I'm just not doing enough. There's more than I can do and I'm not doing enough. And what a conundrum that would be. What soil for a troubled heart to grow. And I hope today, moms, that this word would especially be uniquely comforting to you. Every troubled heart here, I pray, would find comfort in what we're going to study this morning. Why should we not let our hearts be troubled? How can we receive help from God to calm troubled hearts? Well, this morning, we're going to learn that we're not the only ones who suffered a troubled heart. Did you read it in the text this morning? Did you see it? Who suffered a troubled heart? Would you tell me? I'm old, guys. I'm, I'm 63. So can you, can you just humor me? Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It was Jesus. Jesus had the most troubled heart of anyone in human history, in history past or history future. His heart was more troubled than yours or mine will ever be. And God more than comforted his troubled heart and strengthened his troubled heart through his prayers, and through his pursuit of the glory of God in all of his troubles. I don't know about you, but I don't always quickly go to, my heart is troubled, let's pursue the glory of God. I I just don't, I don't make that connection enough. I tend to look for answers within myself. I tend to look for answers in other people, and I'm trying to calm I'm trying to build that bridge over troubled water. That song hit me while I was driving in today. I'm just, you know, but I I look to man. I look to myself and I'm not looking to God and I'm not looking for God to glorify himself as the answer to my troubled heart. So would you look at our main point this morning and let's see by the time we get through this sermon if this main point is the main point of the, the text. Our greatest need in times of trial or triumph is for God to be glorified. I just don't know that we're we're, we're constantly mindful of that. We need to help each other be more mindful of that. Our greatest need in times of trial or triumph is for God to be glorified. And so let's look at, in our first section of of the sermon, let's look at how God's God's glory in comforting a troubled heart, how he does that for Jesus, because you guys, this is how he's going to do it for us. This is, this is the beauty of what Jesus experienced and suffered as a fully, a perfect man. He was fully God, fully man, but he's suffering things that we suffer, but in degrees that we'll never suffer, so that when God comforts and moves and, and ministers to his heart, there is always more than we need from God, always more. So, verse twenty-seven. Jesus says, "Now is my soul or my heart troubled." The word "troubled" here is is, is not just a little a little breeze on a lake that the lake is not crystal clear. It's not like it's not like glass. There's there's ripples on the water. We're not talking about that kind of a troubling of the waters. This is revulsion. This is horror. This is deep anguish of soul. Deep anguish of soul. He is fully God. Jesus is fully God, but he's fully man with real emotions, real feelings, the ability to experience pain. And what he was about to experience would be unlike any suffering that anyone in the world had ever known. And Jesus knew it was coming. Have you ever been there? You you know that a very difficult thing in your life is about to happen. I don't know. You fill in the blank. But you know something is coming or you fear something is coming. I think that happens probably as much as literal things happening. So many times the things we fear never happen. But but isn't it that, boy, talk about stirring up trouble in your heart. I anticipate that something three days from now is going to be very hard and very difficult. And my soul is troubled. Well, Jesus didn't anticipate it. He knew it was days away. He knew that in just a few days, sin, Satan, and death would be defeated. Yes, for the joy set before him. He he loves that part of it. But it would come from Jesus becoming sin for us. Being punished on the cross as though he were guilty of every one of our sinful thoughts and deeds. So, gentlemen, and I'm going to speak to you because as, as, as summer is drawing near and there's less clothing and all those things, please, if, if you ever struggle with temptation and lust and just issues of your own heart, it's no issue with the women or anything, it's just your own sinful heart and temptation, have an accountability partner, you know, as we move into this season of time. But I want you to, guys, you're going to be able to relate to this. If you've ever given in to lust... Um, I want you to picture Jesus dying on the cross, and God saying to Jesus, essentially seeing your face in His face, and He's telling the innocent Son of God, "I hate your lust, even though it was the lust of Billy Ray's." God is punishing Jesus as though He were the guilty one. You know, I don't. I, I would have to. My my sons, as they were growing up, I was like, "Dad, why do you sing so loud?" And I said, because I'm so sinful. I'm a great sinner and I have a great Savior. How can you not? That's what I went, we figured out father, son, father, things. How can you not sing loud? He's about to bear the wrath of God that I deserved and that you deserved. As though he were guilty of every single sinful thought. You didn't even commit it with your hands, but you committed it with your heart. Every sinful deed. He is going to drink dry the cup of God's righteous wrath against our sins. As a man, he would experience what it would mean to be separated from fellowship with his father because of sin. Something that and in his humanity, he's never experienced that before. How do you feel when you're, when you're separated from your child? I, my sons are grown men and I hate being separated from them. How would would that feel for that you actually, Father, remember when Jesus prays, why have you forsaken me? He didn't say Father. He says God. At that point, he was saying Father before, but at that point, he becomes sin for us. And he's not seeing God, his Father, as Father anymore. He's seeing him as the judge of sinners. And he says, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken so that if you believe in him, you'll never be. For all eternity, never be forsaken. You see why his heart was troubled? He was going to experience all of that for us in our place. This is the same troubled heart that cried out. Some of the theologians call this moment a little Gethsemane. This is the same troubled heart that cried out in the garden of Gethsemane. Take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. You still, you hear that. God, in in my trouble, what I most need is not for the trouble to stop. What I most need is for you to be glorified. What's the second, what's the Westminster Catechism is the second question? Guys, don't get old. Your memory, my memory used to be good friends with me. And now we don't even talk anymore, me and my memory. It's like, it's crazy. What's the chief end of man? For those of you who do catechism, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So why, we need God to be glorified. You know what what the Lord loves to do with that? He loves to, to translate that into our joy. Our joy in his glory Verse 27 says, so Jesus says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. That's what I pray. But aren't you glad Jesus didn't pray that? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose, I've come to this hour. Well, what's the purpose? Glorify your name. That's the purpose. It's why we exist it's why we exist, for the glory of God. For God to reveal himself for who he is in a way that would cause our children to be compelled to worship him and adore him and trust him and obey him. Father, glorify your name. Do you notice how he calls him Father? There just some, I don't want to rush past that. Think about your prayer life recently. When you're praying, you know, there's so many ways to address God and that's wonderful. God, Lord king, master, you know, do you include father in your prayers with frequency? It changes your praying. He is a providentially perfect father. He's totally in control of your life, but he's in control like a father is in control. He's not just some force that's in control of the universe He's a father. And so Jesus prays to his father. Please, when your heart is troubled, I think you need to call out to him as father more than maybe any of the other titles. And he prioritizes the glory of God, which results in more joy for him. So now, let's see what begins to unfold. A voice comes from heaven. God's voice. Three times audible voices. One at, uh, at his baptism. One at his transfiguration. and One leading up to the crucifixion. And every time it was for the glory of God. It was revealing the true identity of Jesus as the son of God. He is the savior of the world. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. And there so the, the lord was saying what well, we have the benefit of hearing. They didn't understand it at that time until they got past the cross. But we get the benefit of hearing it today, and God's answer was, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. He glorified it when Christ was born. Remember, the angel sang, Glory to the Lord, the incarnation of Christ, and he would be glorified again in Christ's death, and in Christ's resurrection, and Christ's ascension, and Christ's intercession, and Christ's second coming. Oh, he will be glorified. So Christ glorifies the worth of God by not loving his own life unto death, being obedient to the point of death on a cross. And Jesus says that this voice really wasn't even for my my sake. It was for your sake. They don't understand it at the time. But, oh, we get it now. And let's now see that. But then Jesus rattles off how God is glorified in our hearts. So, you guys... The Holy Spirit loves to comfort troubled hearts in the realm of feelings. He, I mean, that's a great thing. Isn't it? What a wonderful gift from God. But, but the reason our hearts are troubled is not mainly rooted in feelings. The reason our hearts are troubled is rooted in belief about our world. Belief about whether God is going to come and rescue me. Belief about whether He was good and loving and kind. Belief what I should I should I deserve this by now, and I'm not getting what I want. Belief that somehow the forces of this world are bigger than 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 what anything maybe even that God can handle. A troubled heart is always is always rooted to belief, and so the comfort of a troubled heart needs good theology. I'm not talking about sterile, you know, theology that's just like some some fogged in room and it's stuffy and it's... But the study of God is the core comfort of the troubled soul. The study of Christ and what he did for you on the cross. And I'm going to get back to that at the end of this section. So here's the first thing that we need. We need the glory of God in the judgment of sin. Why do we need that? Well, verse 31, Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. The world thought it was passing judgment on Jesus, didn't it? Surprise, surprise. The cross was passing judgment on them. The world would see the judgment every sinner deserves at the cross. You know, when we sing about, He bore my cross, do you do you see this as your cross, not just a cross he hung on to give you some display of benevolent love? Do you see this as your cross? Do you see this that you are the guilty one? Do you see that you deserve that for eternity? Do you see that? Because that's what the cross is doing. The cross is revealing the justice of God against sin, the righteous justice, what sin deserved. The world would see the judgment that every sinner deserves on the cross, and the world would see the foundation of how God judges the world based upon how a sinner responds to the cross. So that judgment is going to come in two ways, okay? The first way is that if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ— Here's how he he judges you. If you repent of your sins and believe in Christ as your Lord and Savior, the judgment of your sins took place 2,000 years ago. Plus, whatever, that's just the ballpark, right? My judgment was 2,000 years ago. I have therefore now no judgment to dread. There is therefore, say it with me, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that's for the believer. There is a judgment, but it was poured out on Jesus. And I've put my trust in him as my Lord and Savior. Or if you reject him, The judgment that your sin deserves will fall on you, not just for a moment, not just for a few hours the way, you know, the reason Jesus could bear it over a few hours, he's he's bearing an eternity of justice in his human body because he's also God. He's perfectly God, perfectly man. And in the dimension that he's perfectly God, he's able to absorb an eternity of God's wrath. In those few hours, you're gonna need to. There's no end! There's no end to the punishment your sin deserves. Please turn from your sin. Please put your faith in the one who loves you with a perfect love. Why do you keep pushing his hand away as though the world has something better to offer you than Christ? That's called foolishness in Scripture. You're a fool. Because essentially, you're saying, I believe maybe the existence of God, but the God I believe in is not worth my obedience and devotion and sacrifice. That's a fool. The second point is we need the glory of God in Satan being defeated at the cross. Verse 31a, he says, Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. The cross may have seemed like Satan's triumph, <laughs> but it was his defeat and it was his death sentence. Um, No long, it's, it's not that he no longer exists. Remember we talked about some of this in Revelation about Satan being bound. He still prowls about like a roaring lion. Some of us have been in warfare with him just probably this morning. But the decisive battle has been fought and won at the cross. I, I read this illustration um, this week, and i would never come across this before. I tend to come across things way later. You may have heard this way earlier. But they use the illustration of the, the D-Day at Normandy versus what would happen later on VE Day when Germany unconditionally surrendered. They said that D Day was the decisive battle. All the the historians say that battle won the war. But there was still horrible warfare that went on until Germany, um, what's what's the word, unconditionally surrendered. I think that probably goes, you know, does a pretty decent job of illustrating what happened at the cross. Satan was defeated. That was the decisive victory. So now like a wounded animal, he knows he's mortal. He knows he's got a mortal wound. And he's going to try to take down everyone and hurt everything. Wreck every marriage. Uh, lie to every kid that they can find more joy outside of Christ than in Christ. Put nations against nations. He's going to do everything he possibly can. And even that's all under the sovereignty of God. Right? Right? so he's not even winning in in those realms but in his delusion and his arrogance he's prowling about like a roaring lion so what does it mean to be cast out well he can't keep the gospel from reaching every nation can't do that he's cast out no longer being able to accuse believers before god about their sins because their sins are forgiven that should be good news to you. I, well, I'll just put this on me. I tend, I tend to, if, if I had a superpower, I would be condemnation man. I live under, I just so easily drift into, I failed, I'm condemned. I, I just, I'm just, you know, I just, that's a battle I face. And the way I have to face that battle is that there was a day when Satan had a legitimate charge. Before I was a Christian, Satan could hold up my list of sins and say, he's guilty. He deserves hell. He doesn't deserve your love. Yeah, yeah, why did you, you even make him? Why did you even create someone so sinful as Billy Ray's? And there was a time before I was saved that that, that claim held weight in the courtroom of God. But no more now God would say to Satan you know what everything you're saying about Billy true he was really bad (laughs) He he was all that and worse Satan and my son paid for all of his sins and he's no longer guilty he's declared righteous in my sight through the work of Jesus on his behalf that's how Satan is cast out that's a Anybody want to say amen to that? Especially if you're under this constant condemnation. And Satan loves to lie. He loves to try to get at us that way. And he is prohibited from God to gather the nations of the world and come against the church to to destroy it. Church will never be destroyed. Because of God being the builder and sustainer of it. The third point is we need the glory of God in Christ being lifted up upon the cross. And he says, when I'm lifted up from the earth. And he, in verse 33, he says, he did this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Justice and mercy meet at the cross. So we talk about the wrath of God being satisfied. But let's talk about the mercy being given and provided and forgiveness being provided. How he would be glorified. Because in mercy, the keys, in mercy, we're going to find the key to our being justified, our being adopted. So justification, one of the great truths, one of the great comforters of a troubled heart, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Uh, Adoption, we were wayward, we were orphans at the fall of Adam, we were all made orphans at the fall, we all needed adoption, we all needed a forever family. And in Jesus and his death on the cross, God adopts us and loves us with the very same love that he loves his only begotten son. Adopted, sanctification. So we've got justification, adoption, sanctification, God's union with us, his spirit within us, cheering us on and empowering us to become more like him in thought and deed and mission. It's so cool. And then the promise of future glorification. That's a big old hug from God right there. That's a big old comforter of troubled hearts right there. So mercy and and justice met at the cross. They kissed. God satisfied his wrath and offered his forgiveness. And the last little thing here is, is D. We need the glory of God in Christ drawing all people to himself. I know if Jesus weren't drawing me, I would have never come. My sinful depravity, my... My love of me, my love of darkness. Uh, I got introduced to porn when I was, gosh, I think it was eighth grade or younger. It might've been sixth grade. And that was in the old days. I mean, what the kids face now. I was in love with the world. How do you stop loving something Unless a superior love wins you over. And that's what happened with me. I believe that's what happens with every Christian. Is that we, we are hell bent in our sinful pursuit of satisfaction of soul. And Jesus comes with a superior love to draw us effectually to him. So what this is talking about is that Jesus will draw all people. Now everyone, is this universal salvation? No he's going to effectually draw all people meaning he's going to effectually draw all people from every he's going to effectually draw people from every ethnic group on earth every nation there are going to be representatives at the throne of god's grace for eternity both jews and for gentiles neither sin nor satan can keep people who hear the saving gospel of Christ from coming to Christ. Satan can't do that. Sin can't do that. Amazing grace draws them. All that the Father gives to Christ will come to him. We've learned that in the book of John. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We've learned that in the book of John. God will not allow sin or Satan to stop him from saving representatives from all nations. We need that, starting with our own salvation. So the crowd answered him, we've heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? This, well, the Messiah remains forever. So there, there are Old Testament texts that do talk about the eternality of the Messiah. But, and so they're saying, how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? They knew he meant dying. They didn't have a category. How, how can the Messiah be foreverlasting and eternal and yet die? It just didn't make any sense to them. They thought the Messiah would come one time and put an end to their being under Roman rule and that God would give them their best life now. That book was being written 2,000 years ago. That, that, that stuff was being promoted then. But you see, guys, whenever we're not, how can I put this? When we are not living intentionally for the glory of God, for the, it, it's, like a magnet, living for our own glory just slips in it like, it like sneaks in the door you know we don't lose our salvation about that or anything like that but it's just so easy to be in one moment, I really want your glory regardless of what it costs me Lord, I want you to be cherished and adored and hallowed but then it's just so easy but could I get a little could I have a little bit It feels really good to be liked. It feels really good to be accepted. So good that it almost seems like this is all I need. When we don't live for the glory of God, we misinterpret other people. When we don't live for the glory of God, you will misinterpret your suffering. You're going to misinterpret it. And the misinterpretation, because you're, what are you misinterpreting? Is God good? Is he powerful? Does he love you? Is he bigger than this problem? Is he more satisfying than the world? All of those things, are, you're going to be misinterpreting God. God. And the misinterpretation will hurt you worse than the trial you're going through. It's what, the trial's not your biggest foe. Your biggest foe is unbelief or wrong belief about why we exist and that we exist for his glory. So God comforts a troubled heart by being a father who promises that, that, that he will be glorified in our lives and he calls us to pursue his glory in every trial and triumph. Pray to the father for that glory and experience the healing. I'm going to give you a category that maybe, maybe you've not heard before and shame on me because I've I'm, I'm not said it this way before because this is actually new in my thinking this week. Would you not limit the, the healing of your broken heart or the, 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 the deliverance, the comfort of your troubled heart? Would you not minimize it and reduce it to just feeling better? Would you accept the fact that today what you need to do is believe better? The healing of the broken human heart will be healed and strengthened and comforted again and again and again by remembering Your justification in Christ by remembering your adoption as sons and daughters because of Christ by remembering your union with Jesus Christ himself through the person of the Holy Spirit in your sanctification by remembering that he's promised to bring you all the way home and finish the work he began that will heal the troubled heart for the glory of God because in all of those things who's getting all the credit not us. He's being seen for who he is. He's being adored for who he is. And, and it will be those truths that the Spirit will use to make your heart feel better. God loves to give you peace that goes beyond explanation. That is an experience, isn't it? But it's an experience based on believing who he is and what he's done for us. Does that make sense? Oh, a silence with that question. Oh, my goodness. Here we go. Oh, condemnation man. Here comes condemnation man. I'm the worst preacher in the world. No one said amen. Um, it might take you some time to think about that, but I, I, I will tell you, I'm older, you're younger. Nothing will heal your heart like the justification that comes from Christ the adoption that comes because of Christ, the sanctification, the fellowship, the empowering that comes from walking with Christ and the promise of eternal joy in the presence of Christ. That's the key to your broken heart. All for the glory of God. Then now the text takes a turn. This is tough. Second point is God's glory in his sovereignty over an unbelieving heart. And that's a category I don't know that we think about a lot either. God's sovereign. We believe God's sovereign over an unbelieving heart in regard to his sovereign grace and salvation. Do you know that God is sovereign over an unbelieving heart that, that has not responded to the grace of salvation? Let's see what, what this text says. I, I, I'm, I'm wondering... I wonder if any of you are going, man, can't wait to see what this dude says about this part of the text. God hardening hearts? God God causing eyes to not see? Let's see what it says. So Jesus said to them, verse 35, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So, so what's he doing? He's offering the gospel. He, this is, he's, he's offering the gospel because of the cross. That means I'm, my shelf life is, is on this earth for, for redeeming sinners. My shelf life, the expiration date is coming. The cross is coming. You're only going to have me literally present with you only for a few days more. Believe in the light And then you'll get the light of life when you believe in me. But if you do not, did you notice that it says a darkness will come upon you? And the the theme, the words being used here is they're already in the darkness because of their sin. But did you know that there can be a darkening of darkness? You You think your life is bad now. What if God actually sovereignly rules over your rejection of him in a way that does this. So here you are, and especially for my teenage friends in the room, oh, how I wish I could just get with you. Because it's so easy when we're young and foolish, or how about you're older, and you've not, you prayed a prayer when you were 10 years old, you've had no passion for Christ for the last 40 years. I'm worried about you. I don't need Christ the way these other people my my religious views are mine and they're good enough. You're you're living in darkness. And God will say, You want darkness? I'll give you more of it. That's what you want. I'll give you more of what you want. So Jesus is offering, this is important to see, he is offering the gift of salvation to whomsoever would believe. Notice the invitation. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. This is also Jesus' last public sermon in the book of John. You see verse 36b says, after this he hid himself away to focus on his disciples uh, until his death. And you're going to so love. Hugh and Alan have chapter 13. Whoa, Get ready. You're going to hear such great preaching from those guys. This was his last public sermon. And his last sermon, he gives a gospel call. And with the invitation comes a warning that their rejection of him could be worse than they imagined. Verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. It's important to understand. They were guilty in their unbelief. You have to start there in this text. Otherwise, you make God out to look like some sicko. They were guilty in their own unbelief. They did not believe in him. This was a willful thing. That's important to understand. They rejected Christ. Guys, they had God standing right in front of their face. How how deep depravity is. God could be standing in front of you and you're so full of yourself that you reject him. Wow. Oh, how we need sovereign grace. The fulfillment of every prophecy and promise stood in front of them. The worker of miraculous signs stood in front of them. The teacher of perfect sermons. <laughs> they, he stood in front of them and they still didn't believe. The one who turned water into wine in chapter 2. Healed the royal official's son in chapter 4. Healed the lame man in chapter 5. Fed the 5,000 in chapter 6. In later in chapter 6, walked on water. In chapter 9, healing the man born blind chapter 11 raising Lazarus from the dead and you still reject him John 1 11 says he came to his own but his own did not receive him well verse 38 tells us we shouldn't be surprised that so many people were rejecting Christ because he goes back and he cross-references Isaiah 53.1. And he says, who has believed our report? This was happening. The, the, the promise of the coming Messiah was being rejected back in the days of Isaiah. Who has believed our report about the Messiah? Even though the arm of the Lord has been revealed. The message and work of the Messiah was rejected then. And it's being rejected 2,000 years ago. And it's still being rejected by foolish people today. Isaiah 53.3 says he would be despised like, like one from whom you would turn your face from. Yuck! This is God? I want nothing to do with you. So a big issue here is first to understand that verse 37 is saying they would not believe. They were guilty in their unbelief. They heard the message, they saw the signs, they even saw the Messiah and they would not believe. Guilty unbelief. They're responsible for their unbelief and disobedience. Anyone who rejects Christ is responsible for their rejection of Christ. Now, verse 39 and 40, the quotations continue from Isaiah 53, and we see a clear picture of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We've just seen man's responsibility, and now let's see God's sovereignty over an unbelieving heart. God is not only sovereign in his grace to save, he's also sovereign over the unbelieving heart. He sovereignly accomplishes his purposes in both his people and in those who reject him. He's going to accomplish his will. In his people, he'll do it. But also in those who reject him, God is still working his will. So read verses 39 and 40 with me again. These these are hard. These are hard verses. Verse 39. They've rejected him. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he's blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart. And turn, and I would heal them. So this is what I would say to our teenagers: You cannot think small of your rejection of Christ. It's not just like choosing chocolate versus vanilla. It's not like choosing tech or A and M. It's not choosing the blonde or the brunette. There are consequences for your unbelief. And those consequences, they're going to come when you die. If you reject Jesus, you're going to have an eternity of God's justice against your sinful unbelief and rejection of him. But those consequences don't necessarily wait until you die. That's what this text is saying. There are times for God to accomplish his purposes. He'll take somebody's rejection and judicially use it to accomplish his purposes. You can't think lightly of just, just rejecting Jesus. And precious young ones, you, you can't just think, I've got tomorrow. First of all, you may die tomorrow. But second of all, in, in your rejection of Christ, your resolve to reject him... You have no idea if God may, you may be one of the people God uses to glorify his name by using your unbelief to do it. Now, how could that happen, Billy? Well, let's talk about that. So just clarify again, God did not make the people he's speaking about here not believe. Please. There's too many times people say stuff about our church and that's what they say. God does not make the people he's speaking about in this text not believe. That's not what God does. God does not reject people who respond to his grace, repent of their sins, and turn in faith toward Jesus. This is not a situation where they came to God and said, we want to be Christians, and God said, nope, you can't be Christians. It doesn't mean that that they said, we repent of our sins. We, we, We want to believe in Jesus, and God says, nope. You can't believe in Jesus. That's not what any of this says. This was a warning about how dangerous unbelief is. And God's sovereignty in using unbelief to accomplish his purpose. Our text reminds us that God will at times not just judge someone's rejection of him when they die. I already said this, but I'm going through the notes. Sometimes he does it by giving the person over to their sinfulness and over to their hardened heart now. You want darkness? I'll give you darkness. You want nothing to do with me? I'll give you nothing to do with me. You want a heart hardened toward me? I'll give you over to a heart hardened toward me how does he use it to accomplish his purposes well let's look at two two dramatic things pharaoh do you know pharaoh had just as much opportunity to put the blood over the doorposts of his house as anyone else did he he rejected it not believed in it thought it was his israelite foolishness and so god uses Pharaoh's already hardened heart. Let me ask you, does anyone come into this world born with a tender heart? Anybody? We're all dead in sin and transgression. We're all already hardened in our hearts. We need a miracle of grace to to make our hearts tender and soft, the heart of flesh, the heart of stone removed. We need that. So God, when God hardened Pharaoh's heart, it's not like God said, oh, Pharaoh, he's an okay guy, but I'm going to harden his heart. He already had a hard heart. He was already a blasphemer. So God gave him over to his blaspheming. And you know what happens? What happens is in his depravity, in Satan-inspired wisdom, He actually positions the people of Israel to receive one of the greatest acts of deliverance known to man at that time. The parting of the Red Sea as well as one of the greatest judgments and defeats of God's enemies that that they'd ever experienced up until that point when the water fell back on the Egyptians. That's what God can sovereignly do with an unbelieving heart. I'll give you into your hardness. And you know what I'm going to accomplish? I'm going to accomplish you pursuing my people to a, to a sea. And they look, this looks like this is the end of the road for us. Weren't there enough graves in Egypt that we could have been buried in? We're going to die right here. Remember all the grumbling and complaining? The sea parts. Why? Because God used Pharaoh's hard heart to bring Israel to the point of their greatest deliverance ever up until that time. Listen, you better hope God still acts that way now with as insane as the nations are. The the hatred, our country, caving in upon itself in terms of morals and values. And we just hope there'll be a better president. And we just hope there'll be a better, we just, listen, God, give us godly politicians. Let there be salt and light in office. But we better hope That God still uses evil against itself to accomplish his glory for the joy of his people. That's what's happening here. He gave them over to their hell-bound pursuit. So here's what, this is to the Jewish leaders. There's a judicial hardening going on. He gives them over to their hell-bound pursuit of crucifying Christ which was the way God had already planned to bring salvation to a multitude of people from every nation. Romans 1, chapter 1, three times, it says God gives over. He gives sinners over to their sinfulness. He gives sinners over to their sinfulness. He gives sinners over to their sinfulness. 2 Thessalonians 2 and Revelation says, in the last days, God is going to give unbelievers over to a powerful delusion so that they would believe Believe Satan's lies that will flow from the Antichrist and the false prophet. I heard two stars, celebrities, I don't know what to call them, I won't give their names. One guy, one woman, talking about how um, uh, drag queens are so good for children. And that, you know, I've got to deal with my heart, you guys. I'm not always praying for people's salvation. I just get so mad. And I thought, oh my goodness. This is a delusion. God, God's giving many in our nation, I believe, over to this delusion. So back to it. So you have the light now. Respond to the light. Don't walk in darkness anymore. Come to the light of life. Unbelief is not a light thing before God. It's just not a light thing. The judgment can come now, not just later. And then John goes back to say how responsible we are for our own rejection. And he highlights the thing where he says, well, some believed, but it's almost like this question mark. There's been the word believe a lot of times in the Gospel of John, and it didn't mean saving belief. There were some who believed, but weren't willing to go public with it. Let me tell you, ladies, get ready to throw something at me. You've probably been ready to throw things at me right before this. Um, I proposed to Jan. I was so scared of marriage. I was so scared of failing as a husband. I didn't want the abusive relationship I saw in my mom and dad. I was just, I loved her, but I was just scared to death of marriage, of failing her. So I proposed to Jan in Durango, Colorado. And, uh, on the way home, on the way back to our cabin where, where uh, my mom and grandparents were, I tell her, why don't we not tell anybody that we're in look? I'm looking, say, I know, don't you want to throw a rock at me right now? I know, I know, I know, you after service, you you come on, you can come on, I deserve it. Is that a relationship, sweetheart? Is that a is it a I'm proposing a covenant. And yet, I don't want anybody to know about it. Is that a relationship? That's not a a union, isn't it? There's not a relationship there. That's horrible. Wasn't that a whole, most, I know. And she still married me. Unless you're public with your witness for Christ, it's questionable that you know Christ in a saving way. They didn't go public with their witness because they loved the approval of men and not the approval of God. The glory of men, the praise of men and not the praise of God and for the glory of God they were they were more concerned about getting kicked out of the synagogue or being dead to their families you know how the cultures can be if somebody comes to Christ they treat them as though they're dead no hope of having a future income because no one's going to give you business all of these things were ruling them they weren't saying God glorify your name it doesn't matter. I have the treasure of treasures. So if I go, if I live in poverty, if I'm not healed, if I don't ever get prosperous, it doesn't matter. What matters is the glory of your name because that's my joy. That will be my forever joy. They were too embarrassed to be seen with Christ in this life. Why should they be seen with Christ for eternity? You don't want to stand for him now, but you expect to stand with him in eternity? Hard hearts and hard heads. John Calvin put it this way. This is in your notes and then we'll wind this down. We must also notice that rulers have less courage and constancy because ambition almost always reigns reigns in them. And there is nothing more servile than that. To put it in a word, earthly honors from people may be called golden shackles binding a man so he cannot freely do his duty. Can anything be more foolish, or rather, can anything be more beastly than to prefer the silly applauses of men to the judgment of God? Well, then he goes on and he says, this is way different about Isaiah. Isaiah saw the Lord. And I've never seen that. But I've always seen this is Isaiah saw God the Father. And I don't want to get too, you know, too uh, narrow on this. But when Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, this is also the Lord of glory in Christ Jesus. And here's the difference. Isaiah is what glory is the difference. The glory of God is the difference. He sees him on a throne high and lifted up, meaning he's sovereign over everything and everyone at all times. His train fills the temple, meaning there's no room for anyone else. There is no mediator between God and man except Jesus Christ. There's no other savior but him. So he sees a vision of God. He sees how he's supposed to be worshiped. Holy, 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 because it's the glory of God he's living for. And he's experiencing who God is more clearly. He's experiencing how to serve him. Those angels are flying around, six-winged angels. With with two, they flew, speaking of how they were were devoted to serving him. Are we? They they hid their feet with two of them, meaning that they were humble. They didn't want any attention to come to themselves. They wanted all the attention to go to the king of kings. And with two, they covered their face because there was always a fear of God before their eyes. And then Isaiah goes further and he sees himself clearly. Because when we see the glory of the Lord clearly, oh, we see how sinful we are and how much we needed a Savior and how great a Savior we have. And so he sees himself as being cleansed by the blood. And then what does he say? Here am I, Lord. Send me. That's what beholding the glory will do. You don't think Isaiah had troubled heart? Isaiah is a long book. But I would encourage you, if you haven't read it lately, go go read it. Isaiah was a very troubled heart. Because he kept telling people about the love of God who kept rejecting the message. And he had to pay some, some consequences for physically for it. But that's what, how does God heal the troubled heart? Pursuit of the glory of God. And God gives joy instead of trouble to the heart. The last part I can't even get to, but the last part is the gospel, the gospel's offer to all people. And those last verses are essentially a summary of the first half of the book of John, verses 44 through 50. It's a summary of the book of john and it's a summary of the gospel that christ is the one sent by god to save you from your sins christ the, god the son and god the father are equal with complementary roles in terms of redeeming sinners from their sin he's been sent by god to save us from sin there's judgment for rejecting him but there's eternal joy for receiving him would you stand Would our prayer folks come forward? That would be Becky and Casey and Sarah and Kenzie. You know, God wouldn't give us, there's more, there's a lot on this, wasn't there? I really bit off more than I could chew. I'm sorry for that. Um, but let's trust the Lord that he spoke to us what what needed to be spoken. What a great day to receive prayer for a troubled heart. What a great day to say, Lord, I've been, I've been just trying to get, I think the cure to my troubled heart is the end of trouble rather than you're being glorified in it. I want to remember again just the high price Jesus paid for my justification, forgiveness and declared righteous. I, I want to thank you that I'm just not anybody to you. I'm a son or a daughter through adoption. I'm so thankful that you've united yourself by your spirit to me. And that even now, even though my change may be slow because of who you are, it's always happening. And you're always with me. And I have such hope for the future because you promised to finish what you began in me. And so, God, could you use that as the soil to calm my troubled heart this morning? To calm my troubled heart. Please come come and receive prayer from people. We won't close with a song because surprise, surprise. Um, But don't miss the opportunity to just spend a few minutes praying and experiencing the comfort of the Lord, the kindness of the Lord and the glory of the Lord.